Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I actually just came back from this amazing, amazing trip to Hungary and Poland, and it was a total whirlwind. We, we left Sunday morning, and I was back Friday afternoon in time for Shabbos. So it was, it was amazing. We went to Reb Shaila of, of Kerestir, which was kind of the, the number one Jewish place in the world that, that I hadn't been yet that, that I really wanted to go to. More about that later. We went to the Kever, the grave sites of so many tzaddikim, including the Noam Elimelech, the Nikolsberger Rebbe, the Chasm Sofer, the Chos of Lublin, Reb Tzadok HaKlein, the Ropeschitzer Rebbe, just, and we, we visited old shuls. You know, I've been to some spectacular shuls in my life. Like, for instance, if you, you know the, the main shul in Rome, I think many people have probably been there, and it's, it's extraordinary, but, but it's super large, and the, and the ceiling is just like, just like a masterpiece. It's, it's really something. But the shuls that we visited in Poland were extraordinary, but they were extraordinary in a, in a different way, because these shuls were hundreds of years old, 400 years old, but they were more like what we would call shtibels. So it was a very different dynamic because these were substantially smaller. And so the atmosphere was completely different. And in a weird way, much more moving because the, the giant ones, while extraordinary in their own right, you almost feel as though this piece of art is surrounding you. Whereas my feeling when I walked into these much smaller ones that were also incredibly beautiful in their own way, but much more from the standpoint of, say, Jewish folk art beautiful. And there was, a, there was an intensity to the experience just because they were so much smaller, which is what I'm used to praying in at the Happy Meeting here in Los Angeles. It was different, different experience and very, very moving. So it was a great crowd of people. There were about 20 guys, like high, high density of like very amazing different personalities, all, all guys, all kind of getting along. It was like, if you're familiar with the term Fabrengen, there was like kind of one long Fabrengen. Fabrengen is basically people talking Torah and, and drinking alcohol and singing. And there were two musicians on the trip who were these two young guys from Israel who mysteriously both, I think, basically spoke Yiddish. So I'm not quite sure how, how, how that worked exactly, but they were delightful. One played the guitar, the other one played the flute and the clarinet, and they were they were incredible and so so sweet. And just it was it was it was really frictionless. And there was this great sense of togetherness. And I was sort of privileged with the opportunity to to sort of like be along on the trip and to share insights at at the different at the different places, you know, not so much as a tour guide, but just to kind of share holy thoughts, you know, when when the occasion arose. So I've never had that experience before, and because kind of like the the seed of my learning has really been the Polish Hasidus, especially, and these we were going to all the the, the great Polish Hasidic masters, or or many of them, including by the way the Ishvitzer Rebbe. 
And that, that was an amazing thing because I had been to the Kutzker Rebbe's kever before, but I had never been to the Ishpitzer Rebbe's. We also went to Auschwitz. And that was my second time at Auschwitz. And that was probably the most difficult part of the trip for many reasons, obvious reasons. But one, one additional reason, just from my point of view, because I, I had to speak at Auschwitz and I, I really did not want to speak at Auschwitz. Like, you know, what is, who am I to say anything at that place? And, you know, I, 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 I dreaded it really. And it really weighed on me for, for weeks before the trip. Like, what am I going to say? And, and how can I say anything? But, but anyway, I, you know, I did end up speaking and I, I, I hope it was meaningful. I, I tried my best anyway. So an amazing, amazing, amazing trip. And so let me just take you through some highlights of it, okay? So just tell you some stories and, and some teachings along the way. Let's start with the Shabbos before the trip. I told you I, I left Sunday morning. So there's a, a, a yesod, a, a foundational thought, which is that all of the blessings for the coming week come down on, on the Shabbos at, you know, before the week starts. So in other words, we just had Shabbos just yesterday, right? So all of the blessings for this coming week, including today till next Shabbos, came down on Shabbos. That's a Zohar. Reb Leibla Eger brings that from the, the Zohar. By the way, we went to Reb Leibla Eger's kever. He's, he's buried right next to Reb Tzadok HaKohen. And they were like, you know, best friends. And, and this, amazing, this amazing visual that... And two of the, the, the greatest giants of, of Hasidus period end. And, and they were, they learned together, but they didn't just learn together. Ever since I heard this piece of imagery, I've never been able to get it out of my mind. You have to understand, the, as, 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 as Rabbi Green would say, each of these people had brains the size of a planet, okay? And, and they, were, they were, they were, they were, they were close friends and students of each other. So listen, look at this visual. They would, you know what a gartel is? A gartel is that very long silk belt that, that Hasidic men, men wear around their waists when they pray. And it's so long that you, that you sort of wrap it around your waist again and again and again and again before you tie it. A very interesting, interesting thing. And it's supposed to separate your, your upper half from your lower half. And there are all sorts of Kabbalistic and spiritual ideas behind it. Anyway, so, so Reb Tzadok HaKohen and Reb Leibla Eger would hold the other's gartel, the end of the other's gartel in their hand. And they would walk back and forth in front of the base medrash, in front of the Torah study hall, discussing like the most exalted ideas. But isn't that just a beautiful imagery of closeness between these two extraordinarily holy people that one would hold the end of his gartel and the other would hold the end of the other's gartel. And it was just a sign of, of closeness and warmth and affection as they walked back and forth discussing like, who knows, like the most exalted heavenly ideas together. So we went to their kever also. That was actually a little bit of an anticlimax, honestly, because the lock was broken. 
and and we you know tried to jimmy it open and then it even got to the point where someone took out a large rock where we were like okay well it's time to break into the kever you know the there's something there's a word i don't know if you're familiar with it it's called an ohel so you see among the many not all but among the 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 bigger torah giants what they'll do is they'll build a small house around the actual grave and that's called an ohel and some of them are a little bit more elaborate none of them are actually i wouldn't even use the word elaborate some of them are more bare bones and some of them some of them are less bare bones but none of them are are like palatial or anything like that in in fact that's it's a sign of their humility and and just it's a beautiful thing that they're not more ornate, if you think about it, because certainly probably there are a lot of spiritual pathways out there that would try to turn them into, you know, more opulent settings. Anyway, not on this trip, but on a previous trip, I went to the kever, the ohel, actually, the house over the grave of the Chedusharim, the first Ger Rebbe, and the Sfasemis who was the second Ger Rebbe, that was his grandson. And you can imagine with that many Hasidim, that that must be one really impressive looking Ohel, right? I mean, imagine generations of Ger Hasidim who would really want covet a Torah, right? To honor the Torah, you know, to, to, to make it as beautiful as possible. I'm telling you, it is a shack. Not only is it a shack, but it's a very small shack. It just barely goes around the parameters of the of the tombstones themselves. And believe me, that's by design. <laughs> believe me, that is by design. That is not a product of neglect, chas v'shalom, God forbid. But, but what I'm trying to convey here is that there's something really beautiful about that. And, and, and the beauty of that is, is the utter simplicity of it. So... So yeah, so the Shabbos before the week starts, Reb Leibla Eger, who we were just talking about, we weren't quite able to get into his, his kever, even though the rock came out to break the lock, to just break into the Ohel. But that, it turns out, we, we, we didn't go that route. We didn't go that route. The, the, the previous time, you know, it's funny because the last trip didn't have it as one of the stops, but... But the bus kind of stopped at a red light or whatever it was, and, and, and the, 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 the tour guide just sort of pointed out the window and said, in that cemetery is Reb Tzadaka Cohen and Reb Label Eger. And people, you know, there was sort of like this like buzz going, and people were like, you know, could we get out? And they were like, yeah, but we don't have the key to the cemetery. So... That, I climbed over the wall of the cemetery the last time that I was in Poland because I was like, there's no way, there's no way a wall is going to stop me from going there. And I remember the ground was covered with snow and I was like running up this little hill after like jumping the fence of the cemetery at night in Poland. And, and I got up to the building and I considered that a success, by the way. But now this time, we had a key, but we couldn't get into the building itself. So whatever it is, I, I, 
I don't have the merit, I don't have the merit, but maybe if there's another trip, maybe next time it will work out. So all of the blessings Reb Leibla Eger brings down from the Zohar, all the blessings of the week that's about to come, come in the Shabbos before the week starts. So the week before I left for Poland, this is the story. So what happened on that Shabbos? Now keep in mind what, what I told you just uh, when we started. The number one place that I wanted to visit in the Jewish world that I hadn't been yet was the, the gravesite of Reb Shaila of Kerestir. Now, if you don't know his name, <laughs> Reb Shaila is sort of like the new superstar among, among, among tzaddikim and gravesites to visit. And if you, I, I, I recommend, I really recommend, there's an awesome book that came out within the last couple of years. And it's just a collection of miracles and stories about Reb Shaila. And this is in just a, a small place in Hungary. And it's near a place called Toke. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. T-O-K-A-Y, which you might know because it's the name of a wine. You know, just like Champagne is actually a region in France, it's named after a region, Toke wine is named after a region in Hungary. And, and I know that my wife uses it for, for one, of, one of our favorite chicken recipes. So periodically, <laughs> there will be a bottle of Toke wine in our refrigerator. So I'm like very familiar with that name. So it's kind of wild that Reb Shaila is, that's where, that's, that's where his grave is. And you can see like traffic signs that say Toke on it and everything like that. Anyway, I really recommend you getting this book. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing book. And what Reb Shaila was absolutely famous for and this is part of the uniqueness of it, is not so much for the original amazing Torah insights, even though he was a tremendous Torah scholar, but he didn't advertise that about himself at all. And that wasn't the centerpiece of why people came to him so much. Well, they came because he was a miracle worker. In life and after death, there's just countless stories of of answered prayers and, 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 and miracles to, to this day. In fact, when we got to his gravesite, there was a non-Jewish person. He was probably, I would say, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s, with a, you know, like a shaved head and a t-shirt and a big gold necklace around his neck. And before we sort of like went into like the hall because we were going to get a little something to eat, he, he physically stopped us and he said, I don't want you to do anything until I tell you my story. And so, so what, what was his story? And just very quickly, now again, a, non, a non-Jewish Hungarian person from, you know, not a major city, but a small town. He said his wife had cancer and she was diagnosed with this tumor and he works as part of the support staff at Kerestir, at, at Reb Shaila's, you know, complex. I say complex because Reb Shaila continues in, after his physical life in this world, to give hospitality to thousands and tens of thousands of people because he was renowned for just feeding everybody. He just gave food to everybody. 
and he had this kitchen going all the time and people would gather and they would eat meals. And you'll see in this story, there's story after story after story about people who would eat his food and become miraculously cured. Like story after story of that. So he, it was his love for other people, his love for other people that was really the centerpiece. And that's, that's really interesting because I sort of asked myself this question, you know, among the, the, the main sites that people are going to today, you have, of course, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. That's, you know, everybody goes there for Rosh Hashanah. Tens of thousands of people, 50,000 people go. It won't be as many this year because obviously of the, the war in, in the Ukraine. But the year that I went, which was before the pandemic, there were approximately 50,000 people there from all over the world. Okay, another incredibly famous gravesite that people go is on the yurt site of the Noam Elimelech, who I, who I mentioned to you. And maybe I'll tell you a little bit about that later. We went there too. Amazing experience. And we were there at 2 a.m. That's, that's when we got there. And just to be at that kever in the middle of the night with the musicians playing quietly and beautifully, and there was nobody there. It was, it was the definition of tranquility, the definition of peace. I can't even tell you. It was just so emotional and beautiful. And you're out in this hinterland. It's like you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, the Rambam says that the... Any t- first of all, any time that you learn Torah is, is the best time, okay? Any time that you can learn Torah is the best time. However, the Rambam does say, all, all things being equal, right? Really, there's a peak opportunity to learn late at night. And I've had this experience, and maybe you have too, and maybe you've had it in a, in a, in a Torah learning way, and maybe you've had it in a different way. Maybe like when you were a student in college or, or maybe working on some work-related project. There's something about late at night when everyone is asleep and you just have this wide open field in front of you with no disturbances. And the level of focus that you can achieve under those circumstances late at night is there's something majestic about it. There's something magical about it, something a little divine about it. And uh, I feel like I, I experienced that by, by the Noam Elimelech's kever. Just being there in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., with that music playing, and there's a, a, a nice mikvah nearby, you know, like going to the mikvah in the middle of the night and then to his kever. It was just, ah, oh, it was so special. It was so special, just feeling like the gates are open, you know? So, so Reb Shaila, getting back to Reb Shaila. So he would feed people and, and they now have the complexes still going. They continue to give meals. In fact, how much are they feeding people in the name of Reb Shaila? When I was in Israel, this Pashvuas, I, I was fortunate enough to give a talk in the middle of the night at about 1 a.m. at, at Asha Torah in the old city. And so I was walking into the old city and I was outside the Jaffa gates and there was a big hospitality center, like a stand that had been set up where, you know, to give like refreshments to the people who were going to be learning all night. It was just on the sidewalk. 
and totally free. You didn't have to buy anything. And they were giving out fruit and they were giving out bottles of water and they were giving out snacks. And I saw a giant picture over the stand of Reb Shailov Karastu. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like, it says that Sadiqim are more alive after they leave this world. And they can do more after they leave this world. That's, it says that in the Talmud, by the way, in the Talmud itself, right? So here Reb Shail is, is like feeding people in, in like Shavuos night in the old city in, in Yerushalayim. And it was, it was very moving to see his picture. So, so I really wanted to go to Reb Shaila's kever. I really wanted to be there. And before we could even walk in, this non-Jewish person said, basically, basically he's like, you're not going in until I tell you this. He was like, okay, share, just anything, just tell us. He said, my wife had cancer, a young woman. And so the person said to him, and he's reporting this, he's telling this story. Well, why don't you pray at the, at the gravesite of Reb, of, of Reb Shaila? And he says, because I'm not Jewish. And the person said, well, you know, Reb Shaila loved everybody. What difference does it make? And so he, and this is him, like running to tell us the story. He prayed and she was cured. And they have a healthy child now. Amazing, amazing thing. So, so again, the Shabbos before the week, the blessings for the week come down. So now, let me tell you about the Shabbos before I left. We, we tented our house for termites about a month ago, and we had to relocate during that, and my, my sister was kind enough to have us, and, and we had Shabbos by her, and she had these like great crackers, and I commented on the crackers, and anyway, about a month later, uh, it's, it's the Shabbos before I'm about to leave for the trip, my wife says to me, hey, I, I remember you really like those crackers. I got you those crackers. I was like, oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. She said, you know, they were a little expensive. <laughs> but I know you really like them. And, you know, for Shabbos, I, I, I wanted to get you them. I was like, thank you. And she takes out the crackers. And I'm like, those weren't the crackers. <laughs> no, I sound like a big jerk, excuse me. But, you know, I was, I was very grateful. But it was like, those weren't the crackers. Anyway. We sit down and uh, we have our meal. It's time to bench. And I get up and I walk by the crackers again. <laughs> For some reason, like I'm totally full, but somehow I'm drawn to these crackers. And the crackers are a special brand. It's called the Rebbe's Choice. And I look a little bit underneath this picture of the Rebbe that's drawn on this box of crackers. And it says, inspired by Reb Shaila of Karastir on the box of crackers of the quote-unquote wrong crackers that were bought weeks after I had made this comment. What did I just tell you? The number one reason I wanted to go on this trip was to visit Reb Shaila of Karastir. 
And here it is. The Shabbos before the trip, which contains, contains the week. It's like out of nowhere, there's Reb Shaila, right? So as, as Reb Shlomo would say, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? So, so I'll tell you another story from the, from the trip itself. One of the things when I, I kind of gave some, I don't know, some opening kickoff remarks, you know, during that little meal that we had before we went to the gravesite. And, and I said, you know something? All of us together, we have to be like one heart. Let's all be like one heart and let's all pray for each other and all of Israel and just try to bring down like the most amazing blessings for the coming year. And I said, one nice thing that I think that we can do to keep this idea of brotherhood going is no one poor for themselves. Like on Seder night, you're not supposed to pour into your own cup of wine. Everyone is supposed to pour for everyone else. Because Seder night, everyone is supposed to be like a king or a queen, right? So I don't know how exactly that popped into my head. But I thought that that might create really a special atmosphere throughout the entire trip that no one pours for themselves. And there was a like, you know, not like a fraternity amount of drinking going on, but there were frequent lachayims going on as we would take, you know, two-hour bus rides and three-hour bus rides in between the various stops, you know? And I can tell you, during the entire trip, everyone was pouring for each other the entire trip, and it created, like, the most amazing, amazing atmosphere. It really contributed to it. I mean, it was amazing anyway, but that really kind of added to it. And so, so, so this, this bus ride that we were kind of on, and like I, I mentioned, there were like a lot of amazing personalities, like a very high density of like personalities, and in, in the most beautiful way, by the way. And just, it was frictionless, like, like everyone was just, just flowing with each other and it was great. You know, there was that moment that I think happens after most group trips, right? Which is where you go around the circle and everyone shares something personal. What, what did it mean to you? What did it mean to you? What was a highlight? Like what? Like talk to me, right? So, boy, I really didn't know what to say. And so it, it kind of got up to me, you know, we were all kind of sitting around these circular dinner tables, you know, about 20 of us. And we were eating dinner at like midnight. <laughs> it was, we were eating like lunch at about 5 p.m., dinner at midnight. It was, it was really, it was a crazy trip. It was so, it was really cool. It was really good. Anyway, kind of it got up to me and I, I said, you know, just kind of give me a little bit more time. And Finally, the last person spoke, and I, I still didn't know what to say, but I guess I had to say something at this point, so. And I kind of surprised myself with what I said. I said, you know, this, 
the, the trip felt normal to me. Like all these like extraordinary things were happening. And I said, it just, it felt normal. And like, I heard a story. Okay, so, so wait, let me, I said more things, but that, that's the point that I want to share with you guys. That this is the way it's supposed to be is what I, what I was trying to convey. Achdus, togetherness, no friction between people. People were kind of learning Torah, but not in this like formal way. It was just like very organic and just, just, it was just flowing. You know, we were going to the, some of the holiest places in the entire world. And we were just kind of like existing on that plane for this period of time. And what I meant by normal was, this is the way life is supposed to be. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. This is the way life is supposed to be. That we shouldn't think that this is the exception and this is extraordinary. This is what we're looking forward to. This is, this, this is normal. This is normal. It's not common, but it's the true normal. It's the true normal. And so someone came up to me afterwards, one of the guys, just one-on-one, -on -one, and he said to me, you know, I was, what you said was so mysterious. <laughs> he said, because throughout the trip, you kept on saying the same thing over and over from every place that we were going to. You kept on saying, this isn't normal, guys. This isn't normal. <laughs> and now you're giving like your grand wrap up and you're saying, this is normal. He said, what's going on? Like, I don't understand. And first of all, I was shocked because I wasn't aware that of what he had just reported to me, but he was absolutely 100% accurate in saying what he said. And I, it took me a while to like try to wrap my mind around my own words and reactions. And I thought of a Gomorrah. And the Gomorrah goes like this, I'm kind of paraphrasing it. I didn't have a chance to look inside of it, but this is the basic story. So I think it was Rav Hanina Ben Dosa, He's a big miracle worker in the, in the, in the, in the Talmud, one of the, one of the greatest of the sages. And I think this is in the beginning of Gomorrah Brochas, if I'm not mistaken. And he was very poor, like destitute poor. And his wife, like it was almost time to light Shabbos candles, but like almost time, like, you know, minutes, right? And they didn't have any oil because oil was expensive. The, it, and if you were totally poor, you know, that was a real kind of like, well, you know, we got to get some oil for the Shabbos candles. So she, you know, was bereft. She says to, to her holy husband, she says, we don't have any oil. He says, well, what do you have? She says, we just have some vinegar. He goes, okay, so light with vinegar. Okay, let's just pause for a moment. Vinegar doesn't light. <laughs> It doesn't lighten, but you know, her husband, who's like amazing, says light with vinegar. So she lit with vinegar and it lit. And that's the story. But you have, you have, the explanation is 
if you go through life looking at everything as a miracle, then even miracles become normal. And then God will make more miracles for you. In other words, if you see everything around you as spectacular, right? Like if you realize like nothing has to be the way it is. Nothing has to go right. And so if anything goes right or if anything just exists around you, that it's miraculous. In fact, the Rambam, writing a thousand years ago, says that someone who doesn't see every single thing that happens around them as a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moshe. That's a very strong statement. That if you don't see everything happening around you as a miracle, that you have no share in the Torah of Moshe. So, so on, the, on the most base baseline level, what the Ramban is communicating is that you have to walk around life with your mind absolutely blown. You have to. You have to see everything as a miracle. But then if you see everything as a miracle, then everything being miraculous is normal. <laughs> and if miracles are then normal, then God can do miracles with you without breaking nature. See, it says God doesn't want to break nature because God has something in mind with the natural order that he's created. He will, on exception, make a miracle. But if the natural order for you is already that everything is miraculous, so no, what's another miracle? <laughs> All you're seeing is miracles anyway. And so I think without actually thinking through this, right? I did not have this kavana. I didn't have this intention when, when I was saying to everyone along the way, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. This isn't normal. And then finishing up at the end of the trip going, you know, the way I would describe this trip is normal. So it really reminds me, it really reminds me of that Gomorrah. And so, so make the miraculous normal. But in making the miraculous normal, don't stop seeing everything as miraculous. Keep seeing the miraculousness around you. But it's just normal in the sense that you know that God can do anything at any time. And you've, you have conviction. You have conviction for that. Then you've created a vessel for miracles in your life where God doesn't have to break the natural order to give you a miracle because you're living with the consciousness of miracles. All right, and now just like my favorite thought, okay? <laughs> You might be familiar, it's a classic teaching, but I'm going to say something new on it. Avraham Avinu is compared to a mountain. Yitzchak Avinu is compared to a field. And Yaakov Avinu is compared to a house. Okay, so now let me explain it in my own way. Imagine a mountain. Why is Avraham like a mountain? because the world was filled with idol worship during his day. And he, so to speak, climbed a mountain. And from the mountain peak, he was able to give to the world the awareness that there's only one power, only one, only one God in the world. 
Remember, when Judaism doesn't say to other religions, our God is stronger than your God. Judaism says there is only one God. All there is is one power. Okay, so that's the top of the mountain, the awareness, the awareness of one God. Now listen to this. Yitzchak makes a field. His son makes a field, but not a field at ground level. A field, a plane, right? Like think geometry, a a plane. The field is a plane that sits atop the mountain. (laughs) Okay, you get where the field is? The field is not starting on the ground. The field is a straight line at the top of the mountain peak. But Yitzchak is associated with the Mida of Pachad, which means fear, or Yira, which means trembling, right? Because to exist, to exist on that plane at the mountain peak, that's, 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 you know, that, that, that requires a lot of awe. Now we go to the last step. Yaakov is a house. You know where that house is? Again, not on the ground. Yaakov's house is on the field at the top of the mountain. And Yaakov creates a consciousness for us to be able to live at those heights. Do you understand? To live at those heights. To be able to be connected with the oneness of God, with the miraculousness that's going on around us all of the time, and to be able to do it day in and day out, to to be in physical relationships and yet to fill them with spirituality and connection to God so that the material is not a contradiction to the spiritual, but it's an extension of it and it's all a reflection of the singleness and the singularity and the oneness of God. And the way Yaakov Avinu, remember, Yaakov is associated with the Mida of truth, emet. And what do we say? Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. So how do we build that house on that plain, on top of the mountain? Through the Torah, through the mitzvah. Through the Torah, through the mitzvot, that allows us to continue to exist in this exalted place with this expanded consciousness in a way that we can be one with God. Remember, the 613, the 613 commandments, like we add them all up to a single digit, and it's one. Through the Torah mitzvot, we're allowed to connect and become part of, in the most amazing way, the oneness of God. Okay, so here's a story from the bus ride. We were in Poland at the time. This was a few days into the trip. And we were driving around a lake. It was a, a, a large, not a giant-sized lake, but, you know, a largish lake that was, that was there. And, and as we're driving around it, we, we had gotten maybe about halfway around it. There was like a highway that, you know, went past it. And we were on our way to some completely other place. I don't remember where exactly. All of a sudden, this guy, like, stands up and yells, Stop the bus! I want to take a mikvah! (laughs) So, why? Because we were just going by this lake. 
Now keep in mind, there was a shopping center in front of the lake. <laughs> and the kind of trip that this was, was the bus driver was like, oh, someone wants to take a mikvah, stop the bus. Okay, so of course we stopped the bus, right? And nine guys get out, nine guys and one towel. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I didn't use the towel. So anyway, it's broad daylight. We, we're walking through the parking lot of this pretty large outdoor shopping center. There's a, like a grassy area behind it, you know, leading to this lake. So, so all of a sudden you got nine guys jumping into the water, which if you remember my mikvah story from a couple of years ago, is, is always like a dicey proposition for me because if you remember, I stepped on a scorpion fish, which is the most deadly fish and is the equivalent of a cobra bite. And the doctor who was treating me said that he thought I was going to die. So I really was like, do I really want to be going into like, what is in that lake exactly? And just somehow just, it seemed like the right thing to do. And and I, I jumped, I, I, I thought, the water for sure is going to be freezing. Anyway, it turns out it was totally safe. It was totally okay. The water wasn't freezing. It was all deep enough. Everything was great. So I'm getting out and there's this little dock and maybe I'll, maybe I'll include a, a picture of this. Like a small dock, like really like maybe six feet long and maybe three feet wide, small. And, and people were jumping in at various parts of the lake, like two or three guys jumped off the dock, this little dock, and I was one of them. And as I'm leaving, like everyone left, and I'm, I guess, pretty much the last to go. As I'm leaving, I notice in the corner, in bright red, perfectly painted, there's, there's two sets of numbers. And the, 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 the last set of numbers, the second set of numbers, the last set of numbers, which is very prominently displayed, is 613. <laughs> and it was just like, what? <laughs> am, I, am I hallucinating that? Am I hallucinating that? Anyway, I have the photo. I, I posed by the 613 because... Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper. That's the story. That's the story. But now let's learn some Torah. I was wondering, like, like, how did I even see that? And why is that even there? And then I remembered a few days before that, on the trip, I was talking Torah with one of the guys, and he mentioned 613, and something went through my head, which was to to add up the numbers 613. So there's something called mispar cutten, which means the small number, it's a type of gamatria, where you boil down a, a larger number, a, a multiple digit number into a single digit. So let's do it together. 613, well six and one is seven, plus three is 10. Okay, now you've got a new number, 10. One plus zero is one. <laughs> as in the oneness of God. 
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That 613 is one? That's awesome. That's awesome, by the way. And, and, and I'm pretty sure I saw that thought, although I, I didn't remember it at the time. I thought it was my own thought, but, you know, thoughts like that are too good to be your own thought, by the way. If you get a thought at that level, believe me, someone said it before you. But that's okay. That's okay. And then I remember learning it from Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver in the Pischei Sharm. But anyway, that aside, let's just say a, a validation of the thought. So what is this? 613, which, as you all know, is the number of mitzvahs in the Torah. That's what it says in the Talmud, that there's 613 commandments in the Torah. So 613 is also one. Well, what does the Zohar say? The Zohar says that the Torah and God are one, right? So how perfect is the Torah? How perfect is every aspect of the Torah that everything like lines up in the most unexpected, beautiful ways, just level after level after level after level after level after the depths of the Torah never runs out. It never runs out. And it was so appropriate to take a mikvah by that, because what's the idea of mikvah? Mikvah means total immersion, right? See, so many people, they think that religion is an extra credit idea, right? I'm going to go through my life and, and do my thing. And you know how good a person I am? Let me just take a moment. Let me just tell you how good a person I am. I'm even going to be religious. <laughs> like a lot of people, that's... Maybe they don't think about it, and they would never express it that way, by the way. But I'm just trying to, like, shine a light on it. As opposed to, in other words, me, and I'm a complete entity in and of myself. And then I add on this little extra, you know, spice to, you know, you know be even more special. Okay. Okay. That's, listen, a- any way you get to it is, is, is good. We've got a Talmudic dictum, which is Shalolishma. Bolishma. And that's a very core Jewish principle, a very beautiful Jewish principle. What that means is that it's better to do something not for the sake of heaven because if then not to do it at all. See, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, tries to do this jujitsu flip on yourself. Let me explain myself. You see, Anyone who approaches the idea of wanting to be more spiritual or wanting to connect to God is coming from a very authentic, beautiful place. And so the Yet Sahara, the negative inclination, wants to stop that. <laughs> like, like, how are we going to stop that person from coming closer to God? How are we going to stop more light from coming into the world? I know I am going to turn that person's sincerity against themselves. I'm going to use their own quest for authenticity as a, I'm going to weaponize it against the person himself. Okay, how does that work? Because a person says, okay, I want to do the right thing, but you know something? If I do it this way without totally pure motives, then I'm not really doing it and so therefore, I'm not going to do it at all. Did, did you hear that? I'm going to say it again, because this is like really something we've got to guard against and something that's rampant in the world. 
And this is totally what I'm about to tell you. This narrative, I'm going to repeat it, is the work of the Yetzirah, using a person's sincerity against themselves in order to stop them from doing good in the world. The person says, wow, I really want to connect, but you know something? I have sort of ulterior motives, really. I'm praying to God because I want a job or I want some money or I want to I want to get married or something like that. So it's not really a sincere prayer. And since it's all about sincerity and I'm not really sincere, then I shouldn't do it at all. Wow. That is the Yetzahara, the evil inclination on the job. On the job. Now, what is the fixing of that? What is the fixing of that? So the Talmud says... If you have ulterior motives for doing something good, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Because remember, Kabbalistically speaking, the name of the dimension that we live in is called Olam Asiya, which means, shockingly, the world of action. See, everyone wants to tell you, you know what? If you've got a good thought in your heart that's so beautiful, that's enough. It's not enough. <laughs> it's really not why this world was made. I'm not, I'm not dissing it. It's, it's great. If you've got a good intention or a good thought, God bless you. But that's not the, what we say, the toelis. That's not the reason or the end result why this world exists. It's in order to convert that good thought into a good action. That is the critical Jewish dynamic. That's why this world is called the world of action. That's why the Talmud says, even if you have a thought that's not L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven, do it anyway. But now here's part two. Here's an amazing thing. So you say, well, okay, that doesn't sit well with me because I, I really want to be sincere. And now you're telling me I should do it without being sincere. So now I'm a little bit conflicted. Aha, but we didn't finish it. The end of that thought is shalolishma bolishma, that one who comes to do something not for the sake of heaven, if they continue to do it, will come to do it for the sake of heaven. That's an amazing thing. That, that is an amazing revelation about your core goodness. And it's issued as a blanket truth and a blanket statement. In other words, we have like, you know, it's, it's not such a great visual, but it's, you know, it's, it's true for better, for worse. As we do more and more wrong things, and, you know, some of them are unavoidable in life because we're just human beings. That's just the way it is. That's one of the reasons why God gave us Yom Kippur before he even created human beings. God gave us Yom Kippur. The Medrash says that Yom Kippur was already invented or created the first day of creation. Human beings were created the sixth day of creation. How much does God love us that he's already creating Yom Kippur and being sensitive to our humanity and our failability on the very first day of creation, long before he even creates us. What greater sign of God rooting for us and loving us can you have than that? So the idea is that the, just the spiritual mechanics, you know, just, just so we know, 
is that as we do the wrong things, it sort of makes a crust over our soul. And it's, it, it creates a bigger barrier between our minds and our hearts. And it's hard for us to hear, like, you know, if you take a, an alarm clock, right, and you put a pillow over it, it's going to muffle the sound of the alarm clock. Well, sometimes the soul, the conscious, is a bit of an alarm clock, and sometimes it just wants to whisper secrets to you, right? But if it's junked over with wrongdoing, sometimes it's very hard for us to hear the voice of our own souls. This is why Yom Kippur is listed as one of the happiest days of the year. Because you get to cleanse away all that blockage and you can hear the voice of your own soul again. This is awesome. What a gift. So let's get back to this Talmudic dictum because it's, it's, very, it's very revelatory about, about what it means to be a human being. It means that if you start to do something not for the sake of heaven, well, why are you doing it not for the sake of heaven? Because you're a little bit junked over. You've got, you know, I'll give you a fancy Kabbalistic term, klipot, it's called. You've got klipa, these are blockages, right? Like a, like a klipa is like, if you have an orange, the fruit of the orange, the klipa is the, the rind or the skin of the orange covering it. So you can have that in a spiritual sense as well. So we have these like klipot that are making us do it, but for alternative reasons, right? Self-interested reasons. But now, let's keep on going to the next step. If you still continue to do it, and you don't allow the Yetzirah to say, you're not being sincere, you're not being sincere, if you don't listen to that voice, and you continue to do the right thing, which is the proper thing to do, even with ulterior motives, to continue to do the right thing, then the klipot break, and then you start doing it for the sake of heaven. <laughs> you know why? because your soul wants to do it for the sake of heaven from the very beginning anyway. And now that channel has been opened up. Through your repeated actions, you have broken through the klipot, you have broken through the blockages, you have broken through the ulterior motives, and now you're just flowing from that place where you were all along. That's the point where you were all along, because that's the truest expression of you. I want to tell you something awesome that I just heard in the name of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Olav Shalom. beautiful, beautiful teaching. He says that, you know, you've got... Hebrew is, in say, stark contrast to, say, the Romance languages, to give an example, or we can say English, right? In that, Hebrew goes from right to left. And most languages go from left to right. Now, I heard something beautiful about that because everybody knows, spiritually speaking, the right side is, stands for chesed or kindness. And the left side stands for gavura or judgment. Okay, so that's why when we make a blessing, for instance, you always hold the apple in your right hand because that's the side of chesed. When you put your socks and shoes on, right, you always start with your right sock and then your left sock and then your right shoe and then your left shoe. So you're always emphasizing the right side. 
because this is, you know, you're, you're channeling and pulling down chesed from Shemaim. So we always do it with the right. Whenever you make a blessing, if you give tzedakah to someone, if you give charity to someone, you always have the, the coin or the bill or the check in your right hand when you, send, when you hand it to them. That's just something that, that everybody should know. So I heard something very beautiful. I think it was from Rabbi Eli Mansur that, that Hebrew goes from right to left because the idea is you're flowing chesed into the world. Remember, God created the world with the Hebrew letters, meaning to say on a more sort of physics level, the roots of the letters are all energy wavelengths. God combined these heavenly energies and he created the world, okay? That's the deeper understanding of what it means that God created the, the world with the letters of the, of the Hebrew alphabet. But the idea is that the letters all are these vehicles of bringing down divine energy, basically. And so when you think about it, that Hebrew goes from right, which stands for kindness, for chesed, to left, that the Hebrew itself, the Torah study itself, is drawing down this level of rachamim, of mercy, into the world. It's very beautiful. It's very, very beautiful. Okay, but I didn't tell you what Rabbi Sachs said that I heard in his name. Something awesome. He says that there's another difference between, say, Hebrew and, and English, for instance, which is that the vowels in Hebrew, everybody knows, are added kind of after the fact. And say, in a Torah scroll, you're actually not allowed to vowelize it at all. Anyone who's seen a Torah scroll, I'm sure most of you have, knows that there's no vowels there. Okay, so then how do you read the word? Like, how do you know the word? Okay, so you, you have to be, you know, you have to learn the language and then, 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 then you'll know. But leaving out a key word, which I'll tell you in one moment. In English, you do have the vowels incorporated within the letters of the word themselves. So you can look at a Hebrew word and you're not sure what it means, but if you look at the English word, you do know what it means because the vowels are there. Okay, but I'm leaving out the key insight. Now I want to tell you the payoff to this idea. And the key word is context. With an English word, for instance, or anything that has the letters included, which is most languages, by the way, you can take a word and you can understand the meaning of the word without having to see it in the sentence itself. With Hebrew, without the vowels, you must have the context in order to understand the word. Now, hopefully you're ahead of me in terms of the implications of this, because this is a very amazing, amazing insight. And another reason why we call Hebrew Lashon HaKodesh, the divine tongue, because the world was created from it, right? The greater insight is it's all about relationships. You see, you know how much suffering and pain and loneliness and 
Everything is in the world because people are taking things out of context. How much argumentation there is. But what about if you always understood the context of why people were saying what they were saying? Or why, getting deeper, why God was doing what he was doing? If you understood the context, even if you... You know something? Have you ever figured out what a word means without knowing what it means just from its place in the sentence or the keyword just from the context? I have. I'm sure most of you have. You're able to figure out what a word means just from the context, even though you didn't know what the word meant at all. That's how great context is. And so Rabbi Sachs says that this shows on our relationship, the centrality of our relationship with God, that everything has to be in context. And we have to understand the greatest context of all, and now I'm adding this, which is the goodness of God. And that allows a person, even if they don't understand a particular series of events or event in their life, even if they don't understand that, if they understand that it's all within the context of the goodness of God and God's love for us, then it still hurts. But I get it. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.